Hi, my name is Jesse Cadden, and I've devoted my life to figuring out what goes into making great albums. I've produced over a thousand records, written two books, and recorded hundreds of podcasts pursuing the hidden secrets of how great music gets to the world's ears. Now I'm proud to present Inside the Album, where we get to go deeper on how your favorite artists have made the amazing albums in their catalog. We will hear firsthand from the musicians and the team behind them that helped craft these records while getting to know the little secrets that go into making great music. On this episode, we're going to talk about the cast recording of the hit Broadway play, Pretty Woman. Gary Marshall's 1990 film, Pretty Woman, remains one of the highest grossing and most enduring romantic comedies of all time. So it only seemed right to take this story to Broadway. And while it's a movie known for its iconic triple platinum soundtrack featuring countless hit songs like Rock Sets, It Must Have Been Love, something interesting happened. When it came time for Broadway director Jerry Mitchell to commission the music for his version of this modern-day Cinderella story, he scrapped that original soundtrack. Instead, he decided to enlist the powerhouse songwriting team of Brian Adams and Jim Valance, a duo most famously known for classics like Summer of 69 and Everything I Do, I Do It For You. It was then up to them, along with a team of collaborators, to combine the spirit of the film with the energy of the live stage, and to handle the joys and limitations that come along with this type of adaptation. I'm going to let Brian and Jim start us off by telling us how they met, since you can really hear their chemistry as collaborators here. Okay, well, we're from Canada, and we're from Vancouver, Canada. I was a musician about 17, 18 when I met Jim at a music store. Yeah, I was at a music store one day with a friend of mine, Allie Monroe, and Brian was in the store as well. I just can't remember why I went. I think I was, was looking for Allie. <laughs> <laughs> I was returning a rental, I think, and Allie introduced Brian and I. We hadn't met previously, but Vancouver's a small town, and the music community is quite small. I knew who Brian was. He knew who I was. We'd been in separate bands in the same scene, and we had a quick chat, and I had just quit my band. I think you had just quit yours. Yep. And we said, let's get together. And literally about two or three days later, Brian came over and we wrote a song the first day. And 40 years later, still at it. It was a shit song, but it was still a song. Actually, it wasn't a shit song. It was a pretty good song. What was, what was the first song we wrote? Don't was, Turn, don't don't turn, turn me, me Away. away yeah. Yeah. I then asked Brian how he came to work on this musical. The idea stems from uh, a friend of mine who was working on the West End. Her name is Victoria Hine. She's a, uh, a dancer on the West End in, in London. We were talking one day and she said, oh, I wish someone would make that film into a musical. It'd be such a good musical. I thought, that's a really good idea. So I called my agent in Los Angeles and I said, do you know who owns this? He said, yeah, it's it's Disney. Disney own it. So I'll connect you. And they connected me with, with them. And this was going back to 2008. And they just said, no, we're, we're not making that. You know, four times a year, someone comes in and asks. And they didn't give a reason. I mean, I have my own thoughts about that. At this point, I was just sort of resigned to the fact that they weren't going to do it. What I did was uh, just sort of forgot about the idea completely. And then about seven years later, a friend of mine uh, called Rob Roth, who was the director of Beauty and the Beast here in New York, came to my show and he says, you know, you should definitely do a Broadway musical sometime. It'd be so great. And I said, oh, I tried to do that. But he goes, which one did you try? I said, Pretty Woman. He goes, they're, they're making that right now. They're make I said, really? He goes, yeah, I'll connect you to the guy. And he connected me to the same guy I spoke to in 2008. And they said, oh yeah, well, we'll connect you with the producer. And then the producer connected me to the director. And then I met the director and we had a chat at that point. It seemed like it could be feasible to do. That's when I called my, uh, my friend Jim Valance and I said, what do you think, Jim? Do you want to do this with me? And he said, yeah. The director you're speaking of is, of course, Jerry Mitchell, and I'm going to let him talk about his side of how this came to be. 
This is one of my favorite movies. I fell in love with the story when I saw it in the early 80s. I was dancing at the time in a musical called The Will Rogers Follies on Broadway, seeing a lot of movies. I actually tried to get the rights to the movie. <laughs> I was a dancer and nobody cared what I thought, but um, I just fell in love with the love story. When I first saw it, to me, it was the perfect Cinderella story. You meet this girl. She's obviously in the ashes. She's in a terrible place. She meets Prince Charming, and then she falls in love, and they end up happily ever after. As I grew up and became a director and choreographer, what I realized was it was a real opportunity for the leading character to define herself as a woman and not be defined by the man. And that's what I really wanted to try and attempt with the musical. When I sat down with Brian and Jim to write the score, because it's a musical, right? First of all, it was I had to convince Gary Marshall and Paula Wagner that the way to bring a movie to the stage is by getting an original score behind it. I had Obviously, I worked on Hairspray. I directed Legally Blonde, Kinky Boots. You know, so I've had some experience taking film stories and adapting them for the stage. My thing that I love most, the reason I go to a musical is to hear the music, to hear the score. So when Brian said he was interested, I thought, oh yeah, I want to meet him because when I think of Brian Adams and Jim Valance, I think of love song. And this was a romantic story and it needed love songs. And it needed love songs from the character's point of view. So I was hoping that they'd be able to deliver that and I think they did quite beautifully. But that was the number one reason I thought they'd be brilliant. I thought that the character of Vivian, there are moments in the film where she says a line that is often the inspiration for a song. And she says right away, in the in the film i think on the street in the original film gary's film she says don't you ever want to get out of here which to me was a light bulb idea for a song for that character about wanting to get out get off the streets get out of the street business and that became the i want song for her but the problem with the characters she doesn't know what she wants she just knows she doesn't want to be here and as soon as we touched on that with brian and jim they came back with that great song anywhere but here which i think definitely is a great launching song for any character in a musical and this is brian and jim talking about how they initially shaped the show with jerry in terms of input our very first meeting our very first writing session in january we had our audition meeting in the early part of 2016. And then shortly after that, I think it was January 2016, if I've got the date right, we all went to Chicago. Jerry was there working on Kinky Boots. So uh, I'm with Gary Marshall there with us. So myself, Brian, JF, the book writer, and Gary Marshall collaborated with, um, with JF. I want you guys to write a song like this. So we would sit around a boardroom table at the hotel in Chicago because it was too cold to go outside. <laughs> it was like brutal, so cold. And we would have a conversation, just a group conversation about a song. And then Brian and I would go to back to one of our rooms. We had a little studio set up and we'd write a, a verse and a chorus just as a, an example. Then we'd all get back together in the boardroom, play them what we had. Everyone would comment on it. Then Brian and I would go back to the room, do some more writing. And we did a whole week of that. It was pretty much 10 in the morning until midnight for about seven days. And it was a very productive, very creative time. And we went through the musical chronologically, as I recall. We started with the opening number, which we had discussed with Jerry over pizza in London. And then we moved on to the next song. And each song began with a conversation with, with Jerry. We'd ask him, OK, walk us through this scene as you envision it. And this is before even a single note or a lyric had been written. And we would record the conversations and go back and listen to them later. And, and there were all kinds of nuggets and really useful instructions from Jerry in, in every case. And the conversation would include, do you want a fast song? Do you want a slow song? We were instructed a couple of times to write a country song. Another one was sort of a jazz song. Hawaiian song. Full-on rock songs. 
And there's one song, sadly, that uh, is no longer in the musical that we both had a lot of fun writing uh, called Money Makes the Man that is kind of an old musical song similar to When I'm 64 by the Beatles. It was that kind of jump, 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 jump. It was a, a real fun song. So there's six or eight songs, really good songs that are no longer in. They would be in for a month or so and then Jerry would say, Yeah, we'll put them in the next musical. One of the hardest parts of doing a musical compared to, say, an opera or an album is you have to decide when is a song going to happen versus when is it going to be dialogue. So I asked Jerry if he had any insight for Jim and Brian on that. No, I think I encouraged them to write, and I think JF did also, any time that they thought something could be a song, write it. They wrote a song called Stay, I think. They titled it, and it was when he closes the door in the scene and asks her to stay, not because he's paying her, stay because she wants to stay and she can't. And the song was really great. It was a great song. But the problem in shaping a musical was we already had Long Way Home which was a ballad and Stay was a ballad and they're right at the end and I wanted Long Way Home because I thought Long Way Home, they did something. The trick also is movies can cut. You can be in a room and then you can cut and you can be on the street and you can cut and you can be, you know, at the airport. On stage, that's harder to do. Music can help with those transitions. They had built this song, Long Way Home, that took me from the penthouse to sort of limbo as they're both going back to their own worlds. He's going to the airport to fly to New York. She's going to her apartment to live on Hollywood Boulevard. And I knew I could stage that and make it really touching. So I didn't want to play around with that. And also I loved the song. It was one of the first songs they wrote and Gary loved it. And so it was the right it was the right story beat. And just before that we hear her sing this amazing number called I Can't Go Back, where she sort of states that her life being exposed to what she's been exposed to, she can't go back and live the life she lived. And she doesn't need anyone to do that for her. She has to decide that on her own. And she makes that decision long before she decides to rescue him, right? So it's a wonderful thing for her as a woman to feel empowered that she's made a decision that she's not going to rely on anyone but herself to move on, to get out of the situation she's in. And they wrote that incredible song, I Can't Go Back, which sort of does just that. It tells you that this character means business. She is not messing around. That's what you want. And here's Brian talking a little bit more about the development process. Music kind of moves that film along. Uh, in fact, I think the title might have actually come from the Roy Orbison song, which doesn't feature in the musical because it's a totally original score. I think the music in the film does move the story and doesn't move it in a narrative way, but it moves it just because it's fun and it gives it an uplifting feel. And so definitely the sense that, that we had going into this was, yes, we want to make it a very uplifting and romantic and fun musical. The first thing that happened was we went out on our own uh, on spec and wrote a, a couple of songs that we felt would be a good way of auditioning ourselves for the part because we knew that they had looked at other people. We, so we worked on these songs we, and then we, we met them. We met the d director, Jerry, and Paula and JF, the writer, you know, produced our songs for them. And, and that was the beginning of a, a very interesting creative journey for three years, which uh, would basically stem back to the director every time. I mean, Jerry Mitchell had a very clear vision about what he'd want and every time we were getting to the point where okay it's now it's time for the next song we would sit down and say okay what do you think we'd have a collective meeting of creatives and everyone would talk about what the next song would be and we just go back and crack on and sometimes we would go out on a limb and, 
try something for a scene. But usually it was better to always speak to the director first because he knew what scenes he wanted to feature in the, in the musical. And here's Jerry on what he thought was so appealing about working with Brian and Jim. Well, there's no question that Brian and Jim's sound, I thought, matched the material. I wanted to keep it in the period without saying it was in the period. So I wanted the music to define the period. Brian and Jim have this uncanny ability to write an incredible hook. And a lot of those hooks that they write sound like they belong in this era. It doesn't mean that they can't write something that sounds popular today because they do that too. And that's actually part of what drew me to Brian and Jim was some of the stuff Brian's most recently written um, that I've fallen in love with. But I went to his concert early on in the process when he agreed to work together. I went to one of Brian's concerts at the Beacon. And I walked in and I was, I don't know what I thought I was going to see, but I was actually in heaven when I left, no pun intended, because I saw all of these couples holding each other and singing their songs, their love songs in particular. And I thought, that's what we need for Pretty Woman. We need those love songs and we need it to be as exciting to the woman as it is to the man. On a night like tonight, just remember you're right where you're meant to be. In a dazzling dress, I'm sure you'll impress. This I guarantee. So since Brian and Jim are obviously veterans of making great songs, I was curious what they did to try to prepare themselves for this new venture of theirs. I did some research. I went and saw a bunch of shows. Uh, Evan Hansen, uh, Waitress... Yeah, Hello Dolly, and I went and saw a bunch of shows because we were new to this. It was a steep learning curve, and I wanted to make sure we went in at least knowing the landscape. The one thing I came away with from every show was, I mean, great song. You know, Evan Hansen, the lyrics are, are brilliant. Uh, I saw Evan Hansen twice. It took me two visits to sort of for some of the choruses to stay with me. So I wanted to make sure that our choruses were memorable, like pop songs are memorable. We know how to do that, but you then run up against the uh, requirement to serve the story. And then so you run into some lyrical things that can hobble you a little bit. So, you know, we had to work around uh, some restrictions, but still try and deliver what we hoped were memorable, melodies and hook choruses. I remember one of the restrictions was, okay, you can't mention hooker, prostitute, uh, anything to do with what she does. You can't mention love and you can't mention dreams. So we couldn't mention any of those things in the first act. But, But further to that, Jerry said, write me a love song. But I don't want the word love in it. Interesting to have that challenge. Of course, it all changed. Eventually, dreams and love ended up becoming a major factor all over the place. But the original directive was to keep that out. And dreams, dreams, don't mention dreams. They wanted to wait to talk about that till the second act. She didn't want to talk about her dreams initially until the, until the second act. And also because there's a song in the second act called Never Give Up On Your Dreams, we were told that's going to be the first time we're going to talk about dreams because that's such a critical song in the set. You know, what? everyone's got a dream. What's your dream? Let's not talk about it until we get to that point in the show. I mean, just to touch on the direction again, I mean, there's a, a film, a couple of films. One is called uh, Russian Ark. The other is called Birdman, which were shot with one camera in one take. And sometimes I see Jerry's onstage direction I- in that way, where, I mean, there's one song that starts in a restaurant and then morphs through into a, a dance scene. And, and the scenery lifts up and goes away and new scenery comes in. And, it, and it's almost like a, like a film, crossfade. It's really quite remarkable. One thing you have to remember, about Pretty Woman, the film, was a lot of it was shot in close-up. So to take that visual and to try and 
bring it to the stage was a huge challenge because it's really about two people and just the raising of an eyebrow or, or the turn of a head would say so much on camera, but you'd have to try and take those emotions and make songs that do the same thing. And so that was a very interesting thing to do from a visual and a song thing. So how are we going to make that little mo- little emotion that she shows in that film, how are we going to make that work in a song and bring it to the stage? That was the challenge. Every song, every single song does that. You know, just from the opening number where it's the, a guy on the street going, welcome to Hollywood, what's your dream? Everybody's got a dream. You know, how do you take that and take that little idea at the beginning of the film, which is literally a five-second thing, and make it the opening number for an entire musical? I then asked Brian and Jim to talk to me a little bit about how they actually write songs. We, we have interchanging roles. I mean, we both write music. We both write lyrics. You know, sometimes I'll write a verse and Brian will come up with a chorus. Sometimes I'll have a chorus, he'll come up with a verse. There's a lot of just independent work and then stitch it together. Sometimes we start from scratch in, in the same room. So many times it would just be sort of busk an idea. Jim would be playing something on the keyboard and I'd go, what did you just play there? Play it again. And then I'd pick up and do something on the microphone and then go back to our notes and see maybe, maybe there's a song title in there. Or sometimes Jim would have a completed song, just needed some lyric adjustments, or I'd have a verse, he'd have a chorus. So many different ways it would happen. There, there, wasn't, there isn't one way. Sometimes we weren't even on the same continent. Uh, Brian would email me uh, uh, just an idea that he'd recorded in a hotel room in Germany on his iPhone, and I would have something that I had cobbled together wherever I was, and we'd you know get the beginnings of a song that way. My thought about this was... Was, you know, I wanted it to be just really as good as songs as we could. I wasn't thinking about a particular time period or, or whether it's camp or not. I was thinking about it just had to be good songs and hopefully memorable songs that people could hum when they walked out. So that was the thing. You know, let's try and write the best song we can for this particular thing. And usually what would happen is a song would be presented and then it would be, we got down to the to the point where it would be, let's just do a verse and a chorus, because if this, if they like the verse and the chorus, we don't have to write the whole song. So that's what we would do. We'd write a verse and a chorus. That would sort of get us to point A. We brought that in, and they go, okay, demo disclaimer, guys. This is just a start. And usually Jerry would have something to say about that. We would take it from there. One of my favorite moments was <laughs> I was away. For the longest time during the show, at the beginning, it was Jerry was sure that the opening number was going to bookend and close at the end of the, of the show. So I kept thinking, okay, we don't have to write a closing number. And then Jim called me up and he goes, I got good news and I got bad news. I said, what's that? He goes, good news is is everything seems to be going great, da-da-da-da-da. Bad news is we have to write a closing number. I was like, oh, what? After I hung up the phone, I literally picked up my guitar and the first thing I wrote was a chorus idea for the closing number, which is Together Forever. Real rough, rough sketch, and I sent it right to Jim, and he went, great, good, we'll fix it when you, when you get here. We'll get it when you get here. And that's what worked. It was just being so bummed out by the fact that we had to write a, a closing number suddenly, I was inspired to sit down and go, right now, I'm going to do it right now. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get this off my table right now. So sometimes that's what it takes. One of the most crucial parts in the creative process of making a musical is the out-of-town period, where they perform away from Broadway and start to refine the show after they think they got it and start to watch an audience's reaction. I turned to Brian and Jim to talk about the new experience they had doing this process. There was changes, and then there was changes, and then there was changes. It never stopped. There was a tidal wave of changes all the time. We rose to the occasion every time. 
And the changes would go into the show literally that day or the, or the next day. So we would go to the show that night. No matter how, how incremental they were, they would every night there'd be a change. To the point where it was like, hang on a minute, I, we might have been better back here. And so sometimes, you know, they were not only taking the song to tell the story, but it was also a choreography thing and it was an acting thing. So the song sometimes became secondary to what was happening. And that would be annoying because, hang on, this, this song is being dissected. Yeah, the nature of trial and error includes error and there were there, and there, there were there were some nights i'd go to see the show and i'd just be horrified but again to jerry's credit he knew too that it wasn't working and and it would either go back to the way it was or we'd do more development and move it forward so it was it was a process of i think two steps forward one step back but chicago got us to to a place but it was a process that brian and i were not accustomed to at a pace that we weren't accustomed to and it, it, it was difficult it was um it was a challenge I can say, I think, pretty unequivocally that Jim and I were thought of just as the songwriters and there wasn't any hierarchy of, you know, just because you were there before, you're, you're going to get a pass here. You have to write good songs and you have to make sure that your lyric is and your melody is going to serve the story. So I personally didn't feel that. Did you, Jimmy? When we're writing songs for, for one of your albums or for another artist, we have complete freedom to write about whatever we want, say whatever we want. There's no one saying that verse doesn't work, rewrite it. You know, we're our own masters, whereas in this case, we're serving the story and and Jerry is the guy that makes sure we are. He, he stays on top of that. So we were serving the story and serving the director. We didn't have complete freedom. But, but I, I think there's a lot of creativity can come from restrictions and parameters. There were sometimes where meetings where there were 20 people in the room, producers, uh, the choreographers, never the cast. It was always the people behind the scenes. And, and Jerry has a couple people who works with him. So, you know, sometimes presenting a song was a daunting experience where you'd have to sort of sit in the room with everybody going, hmm. One of the assumptions about watching an audience reaction is that you're catering it to their every whim. But Jerry explains that's not actually the case. I think that one of the challenges for all of us, and for me and for Brian and Jim and JF, was the out-of-town experience. You know, we're in Chicago, and to be honest with you, the show got a standing ovation from the very first performance in Chicago straight through to every performance we've done in New York City. So Brian and Jim as first-time writers, I think seeing that audience's response in Chicago was a false positive for them because when you see an audience react like that at the end of the show you think well it's perfect it's done what more can we do and it takes a lot of experience on musicals to realize that that doesn't always garner success when an audience stands up it means they're having a good time but that's not what you look for you look for when aren't they having a good time when are they coughing when are they twitching in their seat when are they not paying attention when are they not listening and that's what I've learned I've always learned that and why one of the reasons I go to Chicago or go anywhere out of town is because you get that time with a real audience and the audience will guide you. They will tell you when they're happy. They'll tell you when they're unhappy. They'll tell you when they like it and when they don't like it. And if you can really tune into them, not just your friends, not just the people who are there to support you, but the actual people who have paid the real price to come see the show and watch them, you can learn a lot and make your show better. Now Jerry's going to talk a little bit about what those changes actually look like. Well, the opening of the second act, you know, the polo match went through 
several, several different versions. One of the things you're doing when you're adapting a film is you're looking for ways to make it work on stage. And sometimes that means removing yourself from the film and going in another direction. This was one of the places. Gary had suggested we do a luau in Beverly Hills or in a very ritzy part of California where money's being raised for the senator and Edward is throwing the party. So we tried a luau and they wrote another beautiful song for me, Love Grows. It's the greatest thing to love and be loved in return. A beautiful song. I asked them to write it. They wrote it. It's still a beautiful song. We didn't keep the scene. We didn't keep the number. We didn't keep it. You know, every time I asked them to write something, Brian and Jim wrote something and I felt terrible every time it was cut or changed or we went in a different direction. But that is the job of writing a musical. Nothing is sacred. It all serves the story. And if you don't approach it that, and you can't kill your own babies, you really shouldn't be in the business. Because Cindy wrote nine songs that were eliminated from Kinky Boots, you know, and replaced. These guys that wrote at least nine. Larry and Nell, for me, wrote at least a half a dozen or more for Legally Blonde that were replaced or cut or changed. And I remember I was working on a revival of Ballroom with the Bird. Bergman's, Alan and Marilyn Bergman, and I asked them to rewrite a song, and I felt very bad about it, and I was very young. Marilyn said to me, she said, Jerry, don't ever feel bad about asking us to rewrite. Our job isn't to write. Our job is to keep writing. That's our job. Keep writing until it's perfect. And I thought, wow, that's coming from someone who's much more experience and exposure than I've ever had. And it was just, I'll never forget that when she told me that. And here's Brian and Jim talking about the revision process throughout the show. Some songs would be well-received, and one particular case, the song Long Way Home, I don't think there were any changes to that song whatsoever. In other cases, we were writing the same song ten times. Not necessarily because the song was bad, it was just that the storyline would continually change. And what do you want to say here? Like, how did we open up Act 2, for example? That was the most difficult spot. They didn't know what would be the best thing to say at that particular point. You know, is it, you know, there was all kinds of ideas tossed around. You know, is it, is it this? Is it that? At what point in the story are we? And what's going to move us to the next scene in the, in the most humorous, uplifting opening of Act 2 that we can possibly write? And so we wrote all kinds of things. And without getting into particulars of it, what's there now was something we wrote sort of probably two or three versions before they ended up going back to that. There wasn't really a moment that we felt that's locked because, you know, we don't know. Is it going to change? Is the story going to change? What's going to happen tomorrow? It was changing daily. If it wasn't our lyrics and songs, it was the costumes, the, the dialogue, the book, the hair, everything, the sets, everything was changing so much all the time. Nothing was a standalone. The opening number was one of our audition pieces. It stayed in the musical. It's still there, but it stayed virtually unchanged for the better part of two years. And then one day Jerry came to us and said, you know, I want to further develop the character of the happy man. That he's called the happy man. He's the narrator of the musical. He, he wasn't the narrator initially, and he, is he was now. sort of sort of a narrator. But Jerry, the director, wanted to very much make him the narrator, which required a complete lyric rewrite. And I actually pushed back on that in the beginning. I, I didn't quite understand how that was going to work. It seemed to me to be too on the nose because as writers of pop songs, you know, we have the, the liberty and the, and the freedom to use metaphors and you know uh, even vague lyrics that sometimes they don't mean anything in particular, but they sound good. That's the story. Of my Life, by we the weren't way. allowed. This was not permitted at all. Every line, every word had to serve the story. So the director was very 
Honest he was great about, about that. that. He was good that way. That's what I was saying earlier about, you know, whenever we came to the next section of what we were doing, let's sit with Jerry because anytime we did go off on our own, it was always like, hmm, that's a nice song, but look, we need to do this. Jerry's always very clear. Yeah, he was. Yeah, very, very clear with his instructions. That lyric rewrite was a bit of a challenge of turning the happy man into a, a narrator. And the lyrics were just a little bit too on the nose for me to start with. It didn't take long for me to buy into it. I Again, even when I pushed back, at the end of the day, Jerry was always right. I, I have to grant him that. There were quite a few rabbit holes. All the rabbit holes, you know, were getting to the next thing. So try this, try this, try this, try this, try this. You know what? We need to do this. You are the writers. Go off and do this because I need to know if this is going to work. It's a shame he's not here to actually be here to defend himself because he would say the same thing, I'm sure. Part of the thing about creating something from nothing, like a musical, is experimentation. You have to be able to be free to, to literally try this side of the story and see if it works. Not just from a musical or lyrical standpoint, but from visual. Is this taking this next part of the story further visually as well? So. While Brian and Jim are obviously experts in writing rock and pop songs, there was a learning curve for them learning what goes into making a great musical. We're learning as we're going along here. So one thing we learned is that the second song in a musical is called the I Want song. And traditionally, I think every musical ever written, maybe with a few exceptions, has an I Want song. So, and the director was very particular about that song being exactly perfect and serving the story in a perfect way. I think we wrote at least three completely different songs for that spot. First song maybe was in for six months and then do a couple of workshops and then Jerry would have some further thoughts about it. The Some of the storyline might change. We I absolutely one. love the song we wrote for this. It's called Anywhere But Here. I think we've nailed it. It's a great song, but I actually quite liked the one before it as well. I love the sentiment, Anywhere But Here. I don't, I don't want to be here. I want to be anywhere but here. It says the right thing for what she needs to feel at that and time. And again, the point being, Jerry was right. He got us to that place, but we had to write three different songs to get there. And then as Brian mentioned earlier, the uh, opening number for Act 2 was a real challenge. Oh. A real challenge. I want those months back. <laughs> like in the film, the senator from Hawaii has a bit part. I think he's literally 10 seconds at the polo match or if somewhere. I forget exactly where. He was at least expanded into a, a slightly larger role. That's now changed again. But about a year ago, the opening number for Act 2 was going to be a luau, a Hawaiian <laughs> luau. I love that song. Which one? <laughs> the Luau. Yeah, well, it was. I, I, honestly, I think we wrote ten different songs for the opening of Act Two. It's so my new album is a Hawaiian so we album. Had, we had like um, ukulele and and Hawaiian steel guitar. The book at that time included references to the senator from Hawaii's grandmother offering uh, gin to the volcano god. <laughs> so we wrote a whole lyric about that. <laughs> Try to find a rhyme for gin and volcano god, but we did. And so the senator from Hawaii, we wrote three or four or five different songs based on that theme until it was decided the senator from Hawaii was no longer going to be part of the, the story. And then it went to the polo match. Yeah, but there was a funny thing I remember for the longest time that we couldn't, whenever we had a workshop, we couldn't mention Pretty Woman anywhere. So one of the songs we had mentioned cashews, Hawaiian cashews. They were saying, we need a, we need a name to call this production so for the longest time, it was just cashews. Go there. Go ahead. 
try it. One of the most crucial parts of a musical is how the songs get turned into arrangements. Brian and Jim are going to talk a little bit about that now. Got to give huge credit to our musical director, Will Van Dyke, who has been extraordinary in putting together some arrangements for the song, which have lifted everything to an, a real Broadway level. So we're taking those arrangements in, and we, of course we're, we're fine-tuning things as we go along to suit the song. Some of the arrangements are quite long, so we have to edit them. Some of the ensemble vocal arrangements are just superb. They just lift the song. And he's done great string arrangements. And Yeah, he's a proper arranger. It's, I would say to Jim sometimes, how's it going? And he goes, yeah, good, some, some interesting dance things uh, I get there and they would have arranged for example on a night like tonight which is one of the songs it features in the production one of my favorite it's it's the tango of the night it is a fantastic arrangement and and choreography yeah but that's part of it you know it was designed for dance the song is the song and then there's an arrangement done to suit the choreography the arrangement that's done for the choreography is so clever it's really enhanced the production of the song yeah so jerry would would do step 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 boom boom step 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 boom boom in the choreography and will would go da 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 boom boom da 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 boom boom and it goes on for about five minutes and it's just it's just brilliant and here's will van dyke the orchestrator for the show talking about how he shaped the show with his arrangements I think like a lot of it for me was the end of act one, the end of You're Beautiful was when Brian and Jim wrote the song, like again, like I remember like getting it. I was in Australia and like, I was like, oh, because when they originally had written the song, it was like a verse and a chorus. And we were like, "Mm, this isn't done. Like, this is just like an idea. But we knew like listening to her like, oh, this is going to be a great act one closer. Because like, you know, Brian and Jim, that song in particular, I was like, oh, this is great. And then they they wrote a whole song and like I knew immediately like, oh, this is what everybody's going to do. But then the song needed to include the entire company because it's a musical. And so I essentially like took their like main theme and like ran with it. And so like at a certain point in the tune, it's just all like counter melodies and stuff like that, that like I made up like using their lyric and like their basic idea. It turned into this sort of, you know, not Les Mis thing, but like that concept of like layering like ideas on top of each other. So everybody's saying their theme going into intermission. And at one point it was so, so big that it was confusing and then it got stripped away. And then Jerry was like, we need to have a moment for her. We need to have a moment for her and trying to get Brian and Jim to write that moment and understand like what they needed to do was like really hard. And it took a really long time to like push them to get there. And then they finally were like, oh, we think we get it and wrote something that was great but was like for Brian, his voice and Samantha Barks's voice are very different things. And then trying to tr- translate that idea that they came up with into our show, into her voice in like 24 hours. I didn't sleep much in Chicago, but like, you know, it, it was those kinds of things that were like really trying. We've been talking a lot about musical changes, but now let's talk about what happens when the show actually hits the stage. Here's our Faye Carl, who plays Kit DeLuca in the show, talking about how a leading man can really change a show. Oh, gosh. It's changed a lot. I would say most glaringly, we have a different leading man than we had in the out-of-town performances. And that man happens to also be my husband through a series of bizarre coincidences and events and things that you don't really ever anticipate happening. We lost our previous leading man for reasons, personal reasons. Andy and I were sitting in a car coming from an event much like what we're doing right now. Jerry Mitchell called Andy 
and said, come do my show. And Andy had about 20 days to learn the entire show before opening it on Broadway. So, and he had seen it in Chicago. He had seen a lot of the run-throughs and workshops and invited dress rehearsals and things of that nature. And all of a sudden he found himself being in the cast. And this is Andy Carl, who plays Edward Lewis, talking about how that went down for him. I did, however, have the unique experience of seeing the show out of town in Chicago and seeing uh, workshops beforehand. I was able to see what works, what doesn't work, maybe what I could add to this role. I didn't know at the time I was going to be cast, but at the same time, whenever I see a show now as an actor, I sort of see it as like, oh, I connect with that guy or what would I do differently in order to make that work? Because really, he's just a, he's kind of a dick. He's a rich dick. And so (laughs) it's like, there's no reason to really like this guy. And he's got daddy issues. I'm like, who doesn't? I really want to earn the end of the show where Vivian and Edward fall in love. And what reason is there for it? What reason is there for them to be together? Because really, our show, especially the musical, takes what was great from the movie, but also enhances the fact that this woman finds herself in this world that she realizes she doesn't need to succeed. She actually comes out stronger on the other side of her experience in those six days with Edward Lewis. And she realizes that she can be very very independent. I think the music also speaks towards that with Brian Adam's song, uh, I Can't Go Back, which Vivian sings, and, and it's very powerful, and you realize that she doesn't need anybody. What's the reason for her needing Edward at the end? It's it's really all about opening your heart and falling in love. And so I wanted to make sure that, A, we had the chemistry in order to do that. And here's Andy talking a little bit more about what he contributed to the show. There was a song, Freedom, which I saw in the workshops and eventually got cut in Chicago when I saw it. And I was like, I miss that song so much. Oh, well, what a sad day. But then when I got hired, I was like, can we bring this song Freedom back into the show, I sat down with Jim Valance and I have a lot of balls telling him to change a lyric. (laughs) Here's this guy who's got Grammys and nominations, all this kind of stuff. He's been doing this forever. And I'm like, is there a way to introduce this song in the first verse as something where he's discovering this feeling as opposed to talking directly about it? And that was sort of my musical theater background knew I needed a little something to grab onto. He did it. He did it in one day. He like turned around, gave me this new lyric that works perfectly in the very beginning of of the song. And, And so it became this, for me, I think is Edward's anthem. Right now you're hearing the song Rodeo Drive, and Orfei is going to tell us a little bit about how that song evolved in the show. A lot changed from Chicago to New York, other than just Andy becoming Edward Lewis. There were numbers such as Rodeo Drive, which is my number. It was a completely different number staging-wise. The song is exactly the same, but there were no bodies on the stage pretty much doing the choreography, and the costumes are completely different, and now we have, you know, black dress, white dress, stay up all night dress. We didn't have that. It was pretty much, I I kind of said to Jerry, I said, the way we're doing it now, you might as well just hand me a mic and let it turn into a fantasy rock and roll number, because it's it's not a production number in the sense that it's, you know, telling the story as it's happening. So I think that was a major change as far as the numbers were concerned. There was a song in Act One before Rodeo Drive that was completely different, which is now the luckiest girl in the world. And they handed it to Samantha one night and she learned it immediately. She has that kind of a memory and it became luckiest girl in the world. They would do that all the time. They would hand us new lyrics. They would hand us new script pages. They would hand us new uh, staging and blocking. And 
That's pretty much how it is in previews. And you can't say, hey, I can't do this. You know what I mean? If, you know, I I remember a time, I'm going back to Legally Blonde, but they completely changed my opening verses in Bend and Snap literally 20 minutes before the curtain. And I'm really good. I've got a photographic memory. It doesn't take much, but it was even too much for me. So I wrote all of the lyrics down on both of my wrists. So I had them written all over me. And I'm so glad that the theater in San Francisco was gigantic. It was a cavern. So you couldn't see me doing this. And maybe from where you were sitting, you thought, because I have tattoos, you would have thought maybe I just had more tattoos than you knew me to have. But that happens all the time. And here's Brian and Jim talking about the breakneck speed of those changes and how it affected them. You know, another real challenge was the song that's now called Luckiest Girl in the World. There was at least one or two songs there before that song came along. And I, I again, I really quite liked the song that was there before, which was called Look at me now. It was called Look at me now, which I quite liked. Jerry wanted a new song, and it was a that was a real challenge because by that time we were in previews in Chicago. We were both getting a little burned out. I'll tell you how that t- came about. That song actually, I gone home to hang out with my daughters. They had spread all of their stuff out in the living room floor and I looked at I woke up one morning and there was just shit everywhere toys and I was just like oh girls you realize you're the luckiest girls in the world (laughs) and so I wrote it to Jim I said Jim what do you think of this as a title we'd come literally to the end of our tether we didn't know what to say at this point he didn't respond I didn't Jim didn't write back and I thought hmm maybe he didn't like it and I was just getting on the plane to come back to Chicago to see him and bling my email came up and Jim went I like it. And I was like, whew, good. So we had a title. And then it was a style thing. We sat in Brian's hotel room in Chicago, and we tried for days to come up with something yeah, for I was that like, song. Yeah, come on, we need to make this joyous. This guy, I said, Jim, what's something joyous and really uplifting? And like, what music? And he went, gospel. So we wrote a sort of gospel song. So we got... Right. So, it was, you know, gospel revival. The other story on that song is that we arrived on Monday, worked on Monday, delivered it on Tuesday morning at noon for the meeting, had a four o'clock rehearsal for the song for it to be in the show that night, okay? And I went to the rehearsal at four o'clock and Samantha Barks, the singer, had learned the song. She wasn't looking at a piece of paper. She'd already learned the song. And I was standing there thinking, Sam, how... How did you, I just wrote, we just wrote this, because I don't know, I just remembered it. And so I thought, okay, well, that's a good sign. And sure enough, it was in the show that night and it's not left. I mean, that's one really remarkable thing about, about the cast and the ensemble, all of them. They, they learn so quickly. So they're learning choreography, melodies, lyrics. And because Jerry is changing things daily, they not only have to learn something new every day, they have to forget what they were learned yesterday. It's absolutely remarkable to see how, how quickly they, they move forward. This is orchestrator Will Van Dyke again on how those changes affected him. I mean, the end of the show, when we were in Chicago doing the out-of-town tryout. I mean, we changed the end of Act 1 and the end of Act 2, like, on a daily basis for, like, five weeks. And it was incredibly, incredibly uh, frustrating at times, but also super fun because, you know, that's a great... That is the great part and the difference. You know, when you put out a record, you know, the record's like, that's it. That's forever. And the nice part about doing a musical and then putting out a, you know, original cast recording is, like, we get to like mess with it so many times before you know we record it so like we changed the end of act 2 from like a ballad to an up tempo to a ballad to an up tempo and like how we got into it like actually every day while we were in chicago and then we like finally landed on the thing that told the story best for the show you know when brian and jim would write a song and give me 
the structure of something, the next the next piece of it. I mean, I think like the a great example of it is the opera sequence, you and I, where we weave in and out of La Traviata and Jerry was like, they go to the opera, but at the opera, he's going to sing this song to her. So how do we create like a six minute sequence where we start in La Traviata, get into this Brian Adams and Jim Valance song, and then get back into the opera, get back into the song, and, like, make it all feel seamless and, like, marry those two worlds and then add 15 people singing backup vocals, which is not something that, like, you know, is generally on, like, a Brian Adams. Like, wrapping my head around that stuff was the fun part of it. You know, I have, like, a weird... I don't know if it's weird, but, like, when when I sit down and, like, problem-solve like that, I can always, like, remember, like, oh, I was, like, in a hotel room in L.A. when I did the, like, Rodeo Drive arrangement, but, like, I don't have, like, the recollection of, like, actually doing it. I just knew, like, oh, I'm in the zone. I know how to do this right now, so I'm going to do it. And, like, when that kind of stuff hits, it just sort of hits. But, like, you know, I had this... I was in L.A. You know, there's so much traffic there, and I had this, like, thought on that song in particular. I was like, oh, what if the vocals, like, sounded like L.A. traffic because they're, like, they're on the street, they're, like, wandering around. I was like, oh, that's the way to approach that. So it was things like that throughout that just sort of, like, gave it the authenticity of what Brian and Jim do, but not making it, like, musical theater vocals. It's like, you know, it's like a soundscape, like a pop record, you know? what to say but I ain't Cinderella who'd want to be anyway of all the things I wanted one thing I never got Atlantic's methods of making an original cast recording are already rigorous compared to most but in order to play to the strong suits of the musical they change things up a little bit here's Craig Rosen who's A&R at Atlantic Records to explain the way Atlantic approaches making cast albums is sort of a hybrid between the traditional way cast albums have been made and the way pop and rock albums are approached. Typically, a cast album, you can't record the album until the show opens because you're not sure if the show is locked and what all the songs are going to be. So you're in a rush because the show's already out. There are also very specific rules about how all the actors are compensated, which makes the show pretty expensive to start with before you even get into the recording costs. So historically, the way these records have been made is... You book a really big recording studio and you get everyone to come in and you essentially record the show live in the studio. So maybe you do three takes of every song, but essentially you get everyone in the room and you perform all the songs beginning to end, do a few takes on to the next song. And then once all of that is captured, you go through it, choose the best performances, edit it together and mix it and get it out as fast as you can. So the way we approach making these records is we at least break it up into different steps. So rather than recording everyone at the same time, we start with the band or depending on the size of the band, maybe just the rhythm section. In this particular case, we recorded the core band, recorded all the songs with the core band over the course of two days, then spent a day just on strings, then spent a day with all of the ensemble vocals. And then for all of the lead vocals, we had specific time for each of the lead actors to perform all of their songs with sessions that were dedicated just to them 
where attention could be paid specifically to them, where their vocals could be performed under the direction of Brian and Jim so that we could capture the best performances. So what we give up in speed and cost, we like to think we make up for in quality. And it also makes it so that no one can hide. When you're performing in a big ensemble, it's easy for one bad note by the third violin to be hidden in there somewhere. But the way we record, there's there's no place to hide. Everyone everyone has to be on their A game. Everyone has to give their best performance. And if they don't, we do it over and over and over and maybe one more time after that. And here's Brian and Jim to explain their methodology on the production of it. We're just producing it. We're not actually performing on the record. So we'll be there every note of the way to make sure that it gets done how we imagined it. I think the songs each dictate how, how they'll sound. I mean, we've got, the, there is a cast, the band, the band that's working on stage with us. We're taking them in the studio and they're very proficient. And uh, there's a lot, it's a huge, it's a huge amount of people. That's the main thing. And to find a studio anymore that can accommodate that is almost impossible. The big studios in New York are all closed and we've chosen Power Station, which I have good experience with. I used to record my records there back in the 80s. And so I knew that that studio was brilliant, fought for it. And they were actually closing for this particular time, but it stayed open for us. They were going to renovate it. I mean, it's the same studio as it was in the 80s, the same carpet, I think. So the reason is, let's get the musical. There's only so many isolation booths. I mean, how many people are in the ensemble? There's like 16 people. About 15 ensemble, Yeah, I think. so there's just not enough room. Yeah, I think I got connections. I mean, the other reason to sort of carve it up and do band and then and then do ensemble is just the, the time restriction. Musicians' union literally dictates how much time we have. So we have approximately 20 songs to record and we've got three three-hour sessions to do it in. Just repeat that for so everyone can hear that again, okay? <laughs> Just for those people that like to make records, 20 songs in... Three three-hour sessions. Okay, so chew on that, folks. While Brian and Jim are downplaying how fast this was made, those experienced in an original cast recording saw it a little bit differently. Well, yes, it was very unique. Brian sat literally three inches away from me the entire time in the studio with me and pretty much tailored it the way he wanted it to be performed. So he would sing the line and I'd sing it back the way he wanted it done. And I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world. He has a very specific vision. It's not even huge. It is that which it needs to be in his mind comes out of his mouth and then you are to emulate that as best as you can with it being your spin of what it is that he does and you know first thing i ever played on a guitar when i was a wee little girl was the opening strains of summer of 69 so to have this crazy full circle moment as an adult we had the best time and i sometimes would mess with him i'd be like how was that again what would you want what could can you sing that again for me can you do that again could do it like three more times so i mean we had the best time I loved it. I don't know that it wasn't unnerving for other people who haven't, you know, done this a lot. And I've done this a lot and I still haven't had the writer <laughs> sitting next to me. But when it's Brian Adams, it's the coolest thing in the world. I had the best time. I had literally the best time recording my stuff. And here's Andy talking about his experience in the process. I've done some Broadway cast recordings. I think this is my 13th Broadway show. So I have some experience to speak of. And mostly, most of the time when I'm doing a cast recording, I know I have two days, maybe, maybe two days is usually one from, you know, 10 a.m. till 6 at night or whatever to get all these songs down. And that's about, I'm saying, on the short end of a Broadway cast recording, you got 15 songs and everybody's got to get through them. You know, you basically take your performance as you do on stage and you bring it to the mic. 
Now, it may sound a little bit different. You do a little bit different things, but this one was unique. They're coming from how songs are recorded in the studio and how vital it is to get the right sound and the right phrasing in order to get your emotions from your ear to your heart. I have on stage my physicality. I've got pauses that I can do that I've got looks to a certain character that you can see and sort of follow your, your heart through a full performance. On a CD, you've got just your ear. You rely so much on it. And I think Brian and Jim have their, they're on the pulse of that. They know what that is. They know how to derive an emotion. Brian really made sure that every phrase was how he wanted it. To me, that was cool the first day. Then I was like, okay, this is this is my third day in, and he's telling me how to sing every single line of this thing. And I'm like, what kind of bullshit is this, man? I'm not even like inflecting my own thing on this. And then I heard the recording, and I'm like, this sounds amazing. A great pop album. I'm so happy he did that. I'm so glad that they took the time to make that work that way. And here's Craig talking about how the label had to balance out that perfectionism. What was interesting working with Jim and Brian, who are used to making rock records where they're, you're really not on the clock and you can keep trying things and being creative and doing different performances and trying different takes is that while they appreciated the latitude that they were given and how we make these records, we also had to pull them back a little bit because Brian's instinct is to keep trying things until not only you get it right, but that you get it best. We gave him as much leeway as we could, but every once in a while had to say, uh, hey, let's actually stop here. <laughs> yeah, one of the things that was really unique about this or interesting about this is there's always the process comping and editing, whether you're making a cast album the traditional way or making it the way we approach these records. There is always that process of, okay, we have this many performances of this song, What's the best drum part? What's the best bass part? What's the best guitar part? What's the best vocal part? And kind of um, pasting those things together. I have never seen anyone get as far into the details as Jim Valance did on this record, reviewing every single take, every single note, searching for perfection in every performance, in every detail. No rushing, no compromising, uh, always exploring every single option. And if it wasn't there, trying to figure out how to make it be there. So that part of it, I think, is reflected how awesome the performances ultimately sound. Brian made some of his seminal works with producer Mutt Lang, who is known for being one of the most meticulous vocal recorders in the history of music. So I asked if that played into it at all. Uh, he references Mutt Lang quite quite a bit when talking about how to make records and how to produce. And certainly, if I suggested at all that he might be going off the rails, he always had an example of something Mutt would have done that would have been far more eccentric or extraordinary. And just as the show had to change as they saw the audience reaction, the cast recording has to change in order for it to adapt to a recorded format. When you make a cast recording, you want to make sure that it tells the story of the show, but at the same time, there's a lot of things that happen in a show that you don't want on a record, like dance hits and dance breaks and things like that. So On a Night Like Tonight is a great example. There's like a, there's a, dance, there's a dance break on the cast recording, but in the show, it's almost three times as long because there's so much to look at, and it like works with the music, and there are all these hits, but out of the context of the show, it just sounds like 
a little crazy. And in Welcome to Hollywood, for instance, there's like a lot of like dance hits and arrangement things that we sort of, we took out for the record just so it like played like a pop song because without the visual of, you know, people freezing on stage and things like that, it really, I think you you lose the sense of what's happening and it sounds more like a cacophony of sound than, you know, a song. <laughs> and now our Faye's going to tell us about how her parts changed. My entire Rodeo Drive is completely different for the recording. I, I, you know, because at night, eight times a week for a live audience, and especially the way I sing, I take a lot of liberties. I do a lot of fancy tricks and riffs and craziness that when you do a recording, I come from the record business. You can't really, you have to be more contained. You have to be more in, encapsulated for, you know, you have to make it radio friendly, for lack of a better way of saying it. And you can't do the stuff that you do live for an audience on a record. You know, I think that Brian and I and Jim, we knew that when I went into the studio, I would have to be more restrained. There was not a vocal quality that's more restrained, but it's more like the growls and the riffs and the craziness and the extra, you know, lengthy notes and moments. You can get away with that on stage. You can't get away with that when you're recording something. And we've made a pop CD. We have made a bona fide pop CD that happens to be based on a musical that's currently running. As if all these changes throughout the show weren't enough to deal with. Once you make the cast recording, the musical has to adapt to some of the sounds that you've recorded. Brian and Jim are now going to talk about the colors they had to paint with from that. But we try to keep it simple. Guitar, bass, and drums, keyboards, that's all you need. And then we have some strings. Well, there was discussion early on about, well, the guitars, keyboards, bass, and drums was a given. But we had three more instruments that we were allowed based on, I guess, budget and theater size, whatever dictates that. The opening number started as an R&B song, and the demo we did had horns on it. And the first few songs after that had horns as well, as I recall, we, at least on our demos. Much to my chagrin, by the way. But I just knew that it was going to be problematic. The horns are still there on the opening number, but they're just... It's not horns. It's a sample. Yeah. It's a sample of horns, but the idea of the arrangement is still there. And by the time we got about half or three quarters of the songs written, it was obvious that horns were not going to be an element. And then we had to decide where do we go from there, and, and strings was the next obvious choice. So when I went to see Evan Hansen, their format was two keyboards, two guitars, bass, drums, violin, viola, cello. And that seemed to work really well for the orchestrations in that musical, and that's what we ended up going with. And here's Will talking about how they adapted the other sounds into the pit orchestra. In the show, we have Ableton Live. We had a drum programmer who, because of the way Jim and Brian write with drum loops and percussion loops and things like that, and also I Can't Go Back, that sort of like sound, the iconic like 16th note gated synth thing that's all running through Ableton so there's a we're on like a pretty strict grid in the show so we were able to with the record just sort of like import that into Pro Tools and go from there each song every song has its own guideline and you know it comes in and out like freedom is a great example like there's some loops and like a click that comes in halfway through that song but then it like drops out on the bridge so we have like a little more freedom to follow andy and then it comes back at the end so you know it, it like weaves in and out of the show and it's also if you see pretty woman doing a show like that where it's like strictly clicked in places it makes the visual of the show like a lot more exciting because the lights can be timed like within an inch of their life to like hit where the dance hits are because it never changes, which is great. And it also, you know, keeps everybody honest because you, when you do something a hundred times, you're kind of like, eh, maybe we should do it a little faster tonight. Everybody needs a dream. Even a guy like me. I always wanted to be a 
a singer People told me I was a dead ringer But Marvin Gaye And one of these days I'll be singing at the Halloween I think it's always interesting to get insight on what makes a creation so special from those a part of it. So I turned here to Andy to tell me what he thinks. Every show is different. So I've done a ton of movie to musical transfers. Rocky, Groundhog Day, Legally Blonde, 9 to 5, done a ton of them. And each one is unique in its experience of what the goal and the mission is by the directors and the creative staff. How are we going to approach this? So Pretty Woman is very iconic. There's a lot of iconic lines, a lot of iconic looks. Edward Lewis can't come in not being a millionaire. He's got to, you know, he's got to know how that rolls. So this show gives you the nostalgia that the movie has in that way where you're going in as an audience member and when you're seeing the scenes come up that you like oh this is where they but we're going to do it in a unique way that's for the musical and there's going to be music added we're enhancing an idea so it's really a fun game with the audience knowing most of the people coming to see the show know and have seen this film and so they get to discover it again in a in a unique way where it's like they think something's going to happen and then it becomes this huge musical number that instead of um, the head of Beverly Wilshire showing Vivian how to eat with a fork he shows her how to dance and so yes that may seem very simple idea for a musical but it's actually this great moment in the show. And here's Orfei talking about what she thinks makes it so special. Well, I think the cast recording being unique is that it's a CD. It's like, go to the store. Do people have records in stores anymore? Um, it's a CD. It's a drive, travel with, played in the background when you're having a party. It's, it's a bona fide pop CD. We just happen to be in a Broadway show that it's coming from. I think the other thing is when you're a great musical theater actor and everyone in this cast is, oftentimes you think people are having a great time on stage and there's so much going on backstage that people literally want to kill each other. This particular cast is as close and is having as good a time as you think they're having. That does not always happen that way. We're wildly passionate, dysfunctional, in love with each other family. I think this is a uniquely interesting experience because we have a mega, mega, mega rock star that wrote our songs. I've had that experience before. I'm lucky that way, but this is really fresh. It's really new, and it was a massive soundtrack. The movie was a huge hit soundtrack, and we're not using any of those songs, and it wasn't necessary to drive this story forward. Vivian! Princess Vivian. Had to be the top floor, right? It's the best! So what happened after you climbed up the tower? Thank you for listening. You can find all the episodes of Inside the Album on your favorite podcast app. The original cast recording for Pretty Woman is out now. 